Hello, I'd just like to say that the events depicted in this episode are particularly harrowing. There are many unpleasant things covered in this podcast, and this won't be the last, but this one in particular deserves a warning. There are descriptions of murder and rape, and in an attempt to tell the story accurately, as I understand it, I've tried not to flinch from the details. If it's not for you, then feel free to skip this one. Seldom have I read a book which caused such a visceral reaction as Iris Chang's The Rape of Nanking. It's a 225-page lament to the depravity to which humans can sink once they have completely dehumanized their enemy and are let off the leash. But it's the details which sear the mind, the way Chang recounts the tales of unspeakable barbarity in this neutral tone, almost holding the head of the reader in place by force like the rehabilitation torture given to Alex in A Clockwork Orange. You must read this, it's like she's saying, for the sake of those who were there, for the sake of civilization, and for the sake of yourself. But more than once I had to look away, closing the book to stem the ever-raising volume of the words. I'd look around the room, thinking that someone else must have surely heard them. I'd find myself short of breath, with images in my head to this day which make me wonder if it was a film that I had seen, rather than a book that I had read. It was Chang's conviction that the massacre and mass rapes in Nanjing were overlooked in the accounts of the Second World War. It led her from her native USA to the erstwhile home of her grandparents, who had escaped Nanjing just in time. Her task was to bring this horror story to the world, and doing so made her famous. What impact the source material of her books had on our state of mind, we can only speculate. What we do know is that she struggled with anxiety, depression, paranoia, and shot herself dead in 2004. Book in hand, her statue stands at the Memorial Hall of the Victims in Nanjing Massacre by the Japanese Invaders, which is where we, me and my teacher friend Jess, went. It was drizzly. The museum was indistinguishable from the sky, but for being a slightly darker shade of grey. A steady procession wandered in, taking pictures, talking solemnly. The death count, put at 300,000 by the Chinese government, shouts at you from the wall. A collection of sculptures depicts victims petrified, fleeing their assailants. These stone people appear half-dissolved, indistinct, as if eroded by the weather their degraded humanity reflected in their cracked features. They reminded me of the fossilised citizens of Pompeii, preserved under the volcanic ash in those final moments. But it was no natural force which had descended upon Nanjing. Stopping in front of one sculpture of a person running with a cradled baby, I read the words on a plinth below. Run, the devils are coming. In 1854, an American gunboat pulled up outside Tokyo with one mission. The Japanese were to ditch their isolationist worldview and get on board with the new reality of international free trade. The first opium war between the British and the Chinese had concluded ten years before, and the Japanese had noted how easily the Europeans had dominated the Asians. Faced with a gunboat in the harbour, Japan consented to American demands and opened up, signing their own unequal treaty, but avoiding the war. But, at that moment, 
they resolved not to make the mistakes that the Chinese had made, and instead of wishing that the Westerners didn't exist, they would learn from them and emulate them. This ushered in the Meiji Restoration of the late 1800s, which saw the Japanese renounce their old social structures, finishing off the samurai class, for example. They embarked on a program of westernization and empire building, discovering the heady elixir of racial superiority in the process. Looking across the narrow sea towards China, they saw a once proud country being humiliated by western powers. Rather than siding with the country that had given so much to their culture, the Japanese decided to exploit the weakened Chinese. Around the turn of the 20th century, the Japanese defeated both Russia and China in different wars, annexed Korea and colonized the island of Taiwan. They joined the side of the Allies in World War I and managed to nab themselves some Pacific islands in the process. They now had a sizable empire and were clearly a force to be reckoned with. Ultra-nationalism and fascism began to creep into politics and society. In 1931, after a false flag operation where Japanese troops sabotaged their own railway and occupied China and blamed the Chinese for it, Japan's Kuantung army began to overrun Manchuria, a vast area in China's northeast. It was renamed Manchukuo, and the lame duck Qing emperor Puyi was installed as a puppet. The rest of China was precariously run by Chiang Kai-shek from Nanjing, while Japan provoked battles and uprisings and extracted concessions at every turn. Chiang called the Japanese a disease of the skin, but the communists were a disease of the heart. He had been plagued by communists since the warlord era, when they had an uneasy alliance, and he had a policy of dealing first with the enemy within, before focusing on the scourge of the invaders. Despite making gains against the communists, the civil war was exhausting the people of China. Chiang's rule was being questioned. The Japanese threat was only getting bigger, as troops and administrators pushed south beyond the Great Wall and got comfortable in Beijing. Chiang's long-standing fear and hatred of the communists had seen him make bloody pacts with Shanghai's underworld, and he'd violently suppressed peasants, workers, and protesters of any kind, purges which had ended the lives of innocent bystanders, women and children. Lamenting what he saw as moral deficiencies among the population, never mind the fact that he was engaging in a bloodbath and was up to his neck in corruption, Chiang Kai-shek came up with a new life movement to instill Confucian virtues once more. Lifestyles were policed, sometimes violently, but this did nothing to address people's real concerns, the poverty, the starvation, the drug addiction, the illiteracy, and the existential threat of the Japanese. The communists, by comparison, seemed to have the practical solutions. Chiang was alienating allies within his ranks, such as Wang Jingwei, who set up a brief rival government in Wuhan along leftist lines and worked with the communists. In December 1936, two of Chiang Kai-shek's northern generals had him kidnapped while he was visiting Xi'an. They demanded that he stop fighting the communists and instead team up once again to beat the Japanese. Zhou Enlai, the future premier of China, came to meet the captured Chiang and offered to put communist troops under his command. This wasn't the first time the two men had met. In fact, they had fought together in the mid-twenties, when the newly Republican China was getting kicked around by the warlords. Zhou had even once saved Chiang's life. But their visions for the future were ultimately incompatible, and Chiang eventually excluded Zhou from the military academy along with all the other communists. Later, 
as Chiang's mafia collaborators ransacked factories in Shanghai and killed anyone thought to be a communist, Chiang supposedly allowed Joe and his wife to escape, perhaps as payback for the previous deed of goodwill. One wonders if he regretted the act of mercy, considering how things played out. The communists had developed into Chiang Kai-shek's mortal enemy, and Joe became a cunning agitator, an absolute thorn in the side of the Nationalist Party, the KMT, and one of China's most wanted men. In 1934, he was among the 130,000 communist troops who found themselves encircled in Jiangxi by Chiang's army. They embarked on the year-long retreat known as the Long March, a central part of communist mythology. By the time the 10% of survivors settled in Shanxi, the ideological Mao Zedong had secured his place at the top of the communist power structure with the eminently capable Zhou, his deputy. Having captured Chiang and Xi'an, Mao thought that they should simply execute the man, but Zhou saw the bigger picture and saved Chiang from the grave once more. He was also backed up by Stalin with typical magnanimity, who advised them that only by working together could they defeat the Japanese. On the other side, Sun Meiling, Chiang's wife, who we met in the last episode, showed up to aid negotiations on behalf of her husband. Zhou and Lai and Sun Meiling, natural diplomats both, helped secure an agreement which would stop Chinese-on-Chinese killing. For now, the Second United Front was born. Just as China's arch-enemies were laying down their arms to take up arms against the Japanese, Wang Jingwei was on an altogether different journey. Originally from the left wing of the KMT, Wang was one of Chiang's main rivals. From his rival nationalist government base in Wuhan, Wang had collaborated with the communists in China and the puppet master abroad, Joseph Stalin. But Chiang always ended up on top, and Wang spent the 30s reluctantly working with Chiang or exiled in Europe where he'd meet Adolf Hitler. Yes, that Adolf Hitler. Whatever Hitler had whispered in his ear must have had some effect, because in 1936, Wang would try to convince Chiang to sign the anti-Comintern pact with Germany and Japan, putting China firmly in line with the Axis powers. Despite his right-wing militaristic predilections, Chiang was having none of it. By the time he and Mao finally teamed up to fight the Japanese, Wang's loyalties were in Tokyo. In 1937, tensions eventually blew up and the Second Sino-Japanese War began in earnest. The Japanese began advancing south from Beijing. They also landed in Shanghai and engaged in a huge battle there. Chiang Kai-shek and Mei Ling were on the scene, and the First Lady was injured when she crashed into a bomb crater in her car. Pushing the Chinese out of Shanghai, the Japanese chased them up the Yangtze to the capital, Nanjing, which was soon abandoned by Chiang as he set up operations in Wuhan. On the way, in a chilling omen of what was to follow, two Japanese officers named Toshiaki Mukai and Tsuyoshi Noda engaged in a contest to see who could be the first to kill a hundred people with a sword. Two newspapers in Japan reported on the contest as it developed over the days, treating it not unlike a riveting golf tournament. On the route, the Japanese army also encountered Chongshu, mine and Jess's hometown while we worked in the international school there. 
the Cradle of Elites. In Changshu, the Japanese reportedly burned down 30,000 homes and killed 3,000 people. On top of that, the dreadful thing which gives the Japanese invasion its special, horrifying identity, mass rape. Rapes in Changshu numbered 374. Efforts have been made to try to understand what drove the Japanese to act with such incredible depravity. The cruelty was wanton and gratuitous, far beyond what any military objective could possibly be. Sadly, the rape of Nanjing was far from an outlier, as Japanese military conduct went. They routinely killed civilians during this stage of their military history, or opposing soldiers trying to surrender. They massacred injured soldiers in a Singaporean hospital and had no qualms about bombing hospital ships. Torture and slavery was common. Prisoners were buried alive or used for bayonet practice. There were reports of Japanese soldiers eating the flesh of prisoners, even before they were dead. On the order of Japanese Emperor Hirohito, Manchuko became the centre of human experimentation research labs. The man who headed these labs where innocent people were gratuitously cut up, given diseases, burned and frozen and spun and injected and starved and worse, was called Shiro Ishii. He was a microbiologist and he was the director of the notorious Unit 731 in Manchuko, where some 10,000 people, either civilians or prisoners of war, perished in the depraved experiments which took place there. After the war, he was granted immunity from war crimes by America, because the Americans were keen to build upon that invaluable research, and they were quite happy that someone had had the resourcefulness to do the heavy lifting. It's the single most egregious miscarriage of justice I can think of. Emperor Hirohito, the man who'd signed off so many war crimes, was also spared from any responsibility, and remained emperor until his death in 1989. Of all the countless atrocities committed by Japan during World War II, Nanjing will forever bear the mark of being the epicenter of that cruel legacy. Though the Chinese government's death count of 300,000 might be an exaggeration, the scale was appallingly huge. The army which was left to defend Nanjing tried to surrender, but the Japanese refused. From the off, they wanted a bloodbath in China's capital city, and they got it. For six weeks in the winter of 1937, the Japanese army went on a rampage in the city. At first, men in civilian clothing who were presumed to be soldiers were executed, but this soon extended to young men in general, then any unfortunate soul who caught a Japanese soldier's attention. People were taken to the river, tied together and shot. Survivors were bayoneted. Others were rounded up and killed with landmines or burned alive. They were buried in mass graves dug by other victims. What struck me, both at the museum and in Iris Chang's unflinching account of the massacre, was the absurd inventiveness of the Japanese killing, the apparent lengths they went to to keep murder from getting boring. Victims were buried up to their necks and mauled by dogs, disemboweled, hung up by their tongues, used for sword practice, or sprayed with acid. Female victims were raped before they were killed, soldiers apparently believing that such an act would bring them prowess. Fetuses were ripped out of pregnant women, and the victims were left dying, impaled on sticks or bayonets. Even children and the elderly were targeted, 
Chinese were forced to rape other Chinese, even family members. There was nothing anyone could say. No reasoning or favours or threats. Nothing could deter the aggressors. The only hope was to flee, or be lucky enough to be in the safety zone with the foreigners. The wartime story of Nanjing is unspeakably bleak, an event which makes you look at humanity and ask what we are really like. But it would be wrong to say that Japanese soldiers devolved into primal humans on their barbaric rampage through China. The fanatical propaganda that Japanese had endured since the Meiji Restoration had had a completely corrupting effect, and no amount of residual moral decency had been allowed to survive. The term brainwashing actually comes from the Chinese word xinao, wash brain, a Maoist technique to get people to think the right way. The victims of brainwashing don't simply have their beliefs deleted, they're just readjusted to conform to a more compelling narrative. Barbaric events thus take place within a new moral framework. It's worth remembering that the Japanese thought they were there to save the backwards Chinese from themselves. And later, fear of the Americans was so extreme that Japanese civilians would sooner hurl themselves off cliffs than risk engaging with the occupying soldiers at the end of the war. Some Japanese soldiers held out in Southeast Asia or on Pacific Islands for decades after the war concluded. People from all levels of society had been thrown into an alternative reality, rewired at such a fundamental level that it would be fatal, not only to their victims, but also to themselves. But as often happens alongside horror, history grants us a glimmer of hope, a reminder that humanity can exist anywhere. The hero of Nanjing is John Raab, China's Oskar Schindler, the anti-Wang Jingwei. A Nazi businessman in Nanjing's international settlement, he is said to have saved perhaps 250,000 lives. Raab spent his career working for Siemens around the world, finally in Nanjing. By that time, he was a fully paid-up Nazi, the highest-ranking Nazi in China. He established Nanjing's safety zone with about 20 other foreigners who stayed in the city as war approached. As the bloody tide of Japanese terror swept through the city, the inhabitants in the zone were largely safe, although they had to establish a warning system for when Japanese troops entered looking for rape victims. With some 200,000 civilians stuck in there, it was not an easy task. 600 people were sheltered in his own house alone. The foreigners there were not the targets of the Japanese army, and in theory the Japanese were allies to the Germans, so Raab wrote to Japanese politicians in an attempt to get them to stop their violent excesses against civilians. But this had little effect. They saw corpses building up on the streets, and estimated that a thousand young women were being raped every night. But Raab was almost powerless to stop it. All he could do was try to protect the ones behind the wall, in the zone. Early the next year, Raab returned to Germany with horrifying accounts and evidence of the atrocities. He began to do lectures about the massacres, and wrote a letter to Hitler to request he use his contacts to see that Japanese atrocities be reined in. This is only 1938, after all, before what we in the West consider to be the beginning of World War II. But Raab's attempts got him detained by the Gestapo. His letter never reached his destination. It's safe to say that Hitler wouldn't have given the request much consideration. Raab was thrown out of the Nazi party and forbidden from speaking anymore about Nanjing. After the war, Raab was arrested by the Soviets and then by the British. He was questioned but let go after being deemed denazified. 
But Siemens, cleansing their reputation after being industrial allies to the German war effort, dropped him because of his Nazi past. He was forced to sell his Chinese art collection to pay for food for his family, and they moved into a one-bedroom apartment where they lived on little more than seeds. After hearing of his plight, the people of Nanjing got together and sent what little money they could to help him out, and began sending him food too. But Raab died of a stroke in 1950 in the grip of poverty. In 1997, his tombstone was moved from Berlin to Nanjing. And there we were, in the memorial, looking at it. With Nanjing devastated and deserted by Chiang Kai-shek, Wang Jingwei moved in and set up a new rival government, this time with Japan's blessing. He had gone full turncoat and signed the anti-Comintern pact. He branded his government as ideologically pro-Asian, justifying the collaboration with Japan on ethnic lines. Japan was fine by that. Whatever helps you sleep, Wang. But Wang was nothing more than a puppet of Japan, with no authority to broker peace or govern in his own right. He claimed to be the rightful heir of Sun Yat-sen, but Sun's first principle, nationalism, gave the lie to the claim. He'd betrayed his homeland and acquiesced to the authority of a heinous, fanatical regime. And in terms of the power he really wanted to wield, he had nothing to show for it. In 1945, after 50 years of wanton cruelty against the Chinese people, Japan was overstretched and overwhelmed, and shocked into surrender with the horrors of the atom bomb. The feather in Chang's cap was Wang Jingwei's death in Japan in 1944, after which the collaborationists soon faded away. When the nationalists moved back into Nanjing, they had Wang's tomb blown up, but the celebrations were short-lived. The two titans of modern China, Chiang and Mao, had one more round to fight. In an attempt to avoid returning to the Chinese Civil War, negotiations took place in Chongqing where the visiting Mao dined with Chiang and pleasantries were exchanged. But the agreements were tenuous. Chiang moved his capital city back to Nanjing and the two sides fell into their old ways of blowing each other up as much as possible. In 1947, American President Harry Truman decided that communism was a mole that must be firmly whacked wherever it reared its head. This was 20 years after Chiang Kai-shek had begun whacking communist moles in China, and for him, the Americans were far too late to the party. The Americans had no faith in Chiang, while the communists enjoyed on-off support from the Soviet Union. With the nationalists in retreat, Chiang was tying up loose ends. He gave the order to, quote, kill all the people I hate, which included one of the generals who had kidnapped him in 1936. His wife and children, even the families of the servants, were not spared. The other general was taken to Taiwan with the fleeing nationalists, kept under house arrest until Chiang died three decades later, after ruling over the diminished Republic of China on the island all this time. The frustrated authoritarian leader created terror for the locals, plotted his revenge, and vowed to retake the mainland. Maps of the homeland in Taiwan schools would show the entirety of China, not just the little island that they actually controlled. But it was a fantasy. Nanjing's moment below the Republic of China's white sun was at an end. The seat of power once again moved north to Beijing, where in 1949, Mao declared the People's Republic of China. The country was turning such a deep red that it would, after much more turmoil, become the world's biggest and most successful state to call itself communist. 
And that's the end of the Nanjing Trilogy, a three episodes which covered some aspects of this remarkable city and its history. Next time on Stuck in the Middle Kingdom with you, we return to the school, because there is much excitement as we teachers practice with those kids for an end-of-year performance. Performance.